0: Have you ever had one of those moments when you're driving down the road and the fog is so thick that you can't really see, but yet there's something inside you that thinks, well, the fog's thick, so I just need to click on my brights. And what happens when you're driving and you click on your brights? What happens? Tell me. Right, you show can't see. I, man, that was good. show can't see. You can't. What happens, just for everybody who doesn't drive, I'm like, I'm literally gonna save either your parents or you dollars is what I'm gonna do because you're not gonna get into a wreck if you actually listen to what I say. If you're driving through thick fog, the thing you don't do is just flip on the brights because if you flip on the brights, the light goes forward, right, into the fog and then shines right back in your face. So as much as you couldn't see before, now you're blinded by your own headlights. So many times in life, we, we think that we have we, we think that we have the answer. We think that if we just do it our way, it's the right way. And every Tuesday morning, I meet with a group of guys and we meet at six o'clock in the morning. You ought to pray for them. I do it on purpose just to make sure that they want it. So I'm like, that's the reason why. Says, not really. But so we get up at six o'clock in the morning and, and we meet together at Starbucks and we talk and we have great community. And, and, and we talk about leadership. and We talk about but honestly, the direction of the church and just the heartbeat of the church, and the and just the the spirit of one another—it's great. It's phenomenal. Oftentimes, because it's so early, and because of my neighborhood, and how I have to drive through some hills, oftentimes when I leave my neighborhood and I turn onto Claxton Dairy, it's just fog, like dense fog, and it's very common. I don't know why, but it's just it's just so common. So for me, and I'm driving through this dense fog, my tendency every time is just to flip the brights on, and I'm like duh of course it's not going to work light hits the fog and it bounces right back in my face partially blinds me and then I take the take the brights off and then I do what you do in the fog you put your face right up to the windshield right that's what you do as if as if that that one foot of difference is going to make all the difference in the world but it's clearly not and yet I do that, I put my face right up to the glass and I'm like, and then all of a sudden, then I start to realize I just have to pay attention and, and there becomes some, some element of faith because I can't see everything else that's around me. As a matter of fact, oftentimes I can't even see 50 foot in front of me, so I just have to focus and trust that what I see right in front of, of the hood of my truck is it, that, that I'm going in the right direction and that I'm not gonna do something wrong. So many times in our life, we can, we can think that we're right and one of the great promises of the gospel is this. It doesn't make religious people good. It makes dead people come to life. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't make religious people good. It makes dead people come to life. As a matter of fact, in the 915 service, there was a lady who gave her life to Jesus. I rejoice in that. She learned that. Yeah, please. So it's like, and she, she knows that now. Like even in an infant tile stage she understands that to where now it's like pulled back the veil a little bit and now she can actually see and yet oftentimes the reason why we don't see is because we get caught up in ourselves there's a person in the bible we're going to talk about by the name of Saul we're going to be in Acts 9 in a minute but he thought that he was right he was he was the bible answer guy he was the guy who was like, tell me about the Bible. Oh yeah, this is what it is. And he'd be able to quote you the verse and be able to pound you over the top of the head. As a matter of fact, I believe he took delight in pounding people over the head with what the truth was. He thought he was right, but he was actually dead wrong. He thought he was right and he was, his life was rooted in a level of self-righteousness. What I fear this morning is some of us have come into the building in the same way. This element of self righteousness—that that I'm right, and that you can give you can give five different reasons why you think you're right. You can think you're right because of the family that you come from. You can think you're right because of the the politics that you you prescribe to. You can think that you're right because of because of maybe some f- spiritual pedigree through your family, and you can think that you're right, but you can be dead wrong. So I want to give you. What I think are eight symptoms of self righteousness, and when I put these on the screen, I'm not trying to say, "Oh, I got gotcha. you." Oh, I got gotcha you again. Oh, look, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Times eight. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I want us to see something about this passage. We can find ourselves in a world of self righteousness that a we can be actually blind to the truth, and we can be far away from God. We can be blind to the truth and be and actually be a Christian. But God wants us to be able to see. So I do this not in a way to harm you, but in a way to help you. So I'll give you the first symptom of self-righteousness. It's just the pure resistance to change. It's like, I'm not going to change the way that I think. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not willing to listen to you. If, I mean, come on. I don't need to listen to you because I'm right. Like, so there's this resistance to change because if I can't control it, I'm not going to change. I want to just drop a bomb on you real quick. If the gospel hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. If the gospel hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. So are you resistant to change? Be like, no, 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 I'm not gonna do that. God, yeah, thanks, thank you very much, but I, I got this one, I'll take care of that. I'll go to you on Sunday or maybe when I need to or I get a diagnosis or, I, oh, I, I had a friend who says, hey, could you pray for me? And I responded, yeah, I was thinking about you. Didn't pray, oh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go to God for that. But yet you in and of yourself, you're just ready to take this level of superiority over other people and you are resistant to change. Second one is this. They see their walk with Jesus as personal, not communal. So this is my, my own spiritual journey. It's just, it's just a matter, it's my walk with Jesus. It's my walk with God. It's my destiny. These are words that are all cloaked in the same thing. It's about me. I don't really need other people. Thank you very much. I don't, I don't need you. I've got this. I've got my Jesus and we're good. We're good. I know there's community groups and there's serving groups and there's ministry teams. I get all that, but, but I really don't need people. What you're saying is, no, I'm just a touch. Of, I just have a touch of self-righteousness. Third thing is this. They just believe they're right. Like, they're just, I'm right. So they're right politically. They're right spiritually. They're right, like, they're, they're always the person at your lunch table or at your lunch counter where, like, this is the person who always trumps everybody else, and they say something, and they're like, oh, yeah. And they always come through as the authority. Like, they're right. Like, they have it all figured out. Like, they're just right. But they're wrong. Fourth one is this. They ultimately can't take criticism. They can't take criticism. So a self-righteous person, if somebody says, hey, uh, brother, sister, hey, um, I'm I'm seeing this in your life, and I just I know that you're you're trying to pursue Jesus, and yet you're you're not right now. And there's this this area of your life that I think you're blind to, but everybody else can see. And it's the way people experience you. You like you're just you're unnecessarily harsh with people. Like you're really pushy. Um, and if that person, if, you, if you're self-righteous, you can't take that criticism. You say, thank you very much. You push everybody else away. I've got this. I don't really need you. I'm still, remember, I'm on my own personal journey. It's a matter of my walk with Jesus. They ultimately can't take criticism. Is that you? Fifth one is this. They compare religious accomplishments. Here's what I, here is what I've heard over and over and over here. It's the only part of the, of the country that I've lived in that I hear it over and over and over. It's like if somebody's confronted with something, as somebody who claims they're a follower of Christ and they're, they're confronted with something, what they'll do is they'll go through with all of their, their spiritual pedigree and religious accomplishments. And they'll be like, yeah, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, my, my grandpa was a pastor. I hear that one all the time. I'm like, that's awesome. Maybe he was saved. Maybe. I don't know. But maybe he was. Um, but yeah, oh, my, my grandpa was a pastor. And what's, I mean, tell tell me something else, right? So comparing religious accomplishments or somebody says, I have a degree or I have a title or therefore what you're also saying is I'm entitled. Comparing religious accomplishments. So do you find yourself arguing about your religious accomplishments? How many studies you've done? How long you've been in the faith? How well you're serving? The title that you have or your family has had. Sixth thing is confession is difficult. This one, I believe, is the most beneficial of any on this list as far as, as my own life and I think also for this talk. You see, if confession is difficult, if you have a hard time just going to God and praying about what you've done, what you've, what you've uh, prescribed for yourself is, you are the highest authority. And because of your self-righteousness, you don't need to confess to anyone because ultimately you're treating yourself as if you're God. So is confession difficult for you? like, ah, just, I'm just not comfortable with admitting my faults to God or anyone else. Then maybe because you have a touch of self-righteousness. Seventh thing is they pounce on others' mistakes. They just pounce on others' mistakes because they're not willing to have other people speak into them. What they become is they they are the angry Christian. That's who they are. They're angry about their own walk with God and yet they take it out on everybody else and it's rooted in a matter of self-righteousness. So they're willing to just pounce on other people's mistakes, but don't you dare talk about mine. So they'll just pounce on other people, but like they'll, somebody, they'll see somebody fail and be like, I told you about that. Oh, my kids are, you know what? Because they're not in church or my marriage is on the rocks. I know it's because like, how about some grace, right? Right. So, if, if you are experiencing people or if people experience you like that, it's because there's some self-righteousness there. And the last on my list, it could be more, they ultimately just live out of their accomplishments. Remember, they're, they're trying to, in essence, work their way to God. So, they have to compile accomplishment on top of accomplishment on top of accomplishment on top of accomplishment on top of accomplishment. It's 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 almost as if the fallen nature within them is saying, if I just try hard enough and I try a little harder and yet a little harder and a little harder and a little harder and I just work a little harder and I, and I do this just a little bit more and a little bit harder, then eventually I'm gonna be one with God. Self-righteousness does that. We're gonna see a gentleman by the name of Saul who I think his life was just, so evident of the change that happened in his life to see the before and after. And what we see in him at, at the beginning of his story is this element of self-righteousness. And unfortunately, he had the pedigree. He he was well-trained. He came from a great family. He actually was part of a, a specific, there were two main, like the big theological schools. He came from one of them. So it's like, it was the, the Yale and Harvard Princeton of the day. It's like, if you say, if you say you came from that school, it's like people sat back and said, oh, like when he would come into the room, people would accept him as the authority and it had all gone to his head because nothing was in his heart except self-righteousness. So let's see how those walls break down. Acts 9, 1 through 19. Continuing on in this series, we're gonna take this, uh, we're gonna take this message all the way through the 19 verses and I'm, gonna, I'm going to explain every word of those 19 verses. I, I estimate this is going to be a three-hour message. Um, hope you had some caffeine. No, we're going to actually take this just a couple verses at a time as we work through this. But I want to draw some things that I believe um, that we can see that changed within Saul and that perhaps needed change within us. So we'll go through verses 1 and 2. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, oh, that's not what it says. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that he, that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So it's like, while the church is growing, we're gonna see actually by this point, the, the, the church is actually has thousands of people already. Like, things are moving. People are getting saved. People are getting dunked. There's amazing things happening. There's some healing that's happening, miraculous healing. The Holy Spirit's coming down, doing stuff. It's like, people are scratching their head, and they're like, how in the world is this possible? And it's like, people just gave ultimately the, you know, the, the vacation Bible school, little kids answer, Jesus, like they had no idea what to say or even how to explain what they were experiencing. And while all these awesome things were going on with the church, the people that redeemed of God and they're radically being saved and their lives are being just turned upside down and things are going so awesome for them. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Saul is whispering out murderous threats against the Christians. So we see in verse one and two, Saul had gone out and asked for permission from the high priest and he's like, hey, would it be okay if I travel all around the land and seek out men and women who call themselves followers of the way and if I find these followers of the way, can I throw them in prison? The high priest is like, absolutely. Sure. So now he's just on this rampage of absolute hatred Hating Christians, and this is what we see about his story. We see from other passages that he was a Pharisee. That means he knew the Bible better than any of us. Like memorized stuff, like, but what he missed in the middle of that, he missed what Jesus said were the, the first and second greatest commandment to love God and love other people. Like he just missed it. But he thought he was right. He thought he was, listen to me, church. He thought he was doing God a favor by cleaning up all these heathens, all these people of the way. He thought he was doing God a favor. So many times we think we're doing God a favor when we go out and say harmful things to people who aren't even Christians. And we're like, well, I'm just doing God's job for him. No, he's not. You see, he, Jesus Christ was the full embodiment of grace and truth. He doesn't need you wielding a bat, beating other people who are not followers of the way over the head to prove that you're more right. Instead, what we ought to do is what the early church did. They had a way of not being above everyone else, but being with people. Being with people. Acts 2, go to the left in your Bible. I want to read a couple passages outside of our main passage I don't know if I'll get to all of them. You know, it's always, it's always, it could go either way with me. So we're just gonna roll on if that's cool with you. I know the destination, but I didn't get a map. So we're just, we're rolling. That's what we're doing right now. In case you wondered. Acts 2.41 says this. This isn't gonna be on your screen. It says, those who accepted his message, that means uh, the message of ultimately the message of Jesus by faith in Christ. They placed their their faith, their their life is in faith in Christ. They were baptized. That means they were dunked. They weren't sprinkled. They weren't whatever. They were dunked. They were immersed. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's quite a revival, is it not? Like three grand. That's a big deal. Like, yeah, this happens. Boom, God shows up. We're saving 3,000 today. Boom, here. I mean, obviously, I think some of that's lost in translation nowadays because we see these great revivals and we hear the the things that Billy Graham has done and stuff like that, but they didn't have the platform that we have now. So when 3,000 people in this small agricultural area get saved, the people come from miles and miles and miles around to come in to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus and people are getting saved, it's a really big deal. But look what the early believers did. These were the followers of the way. Verse 42 says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers, listen to this. I mean, this is just so, like, is this even true? All the believers were together and had everything in common selling the possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily. Those who were being saved. So it wasn't like this, this big revival and be like 3000 people giving their life to Jesus. It's because the people who were living the way of Jesus, then they were, they were, Impacting the, the world around them, and then people were giving their life to Jesus. So people were attracted to the people who were prescribed to the way. Before Christians were called, the gathering of Christians was called the church, they were first called the Way. And it was it was known as the Way. I think it goes back to John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. I believe there's some element there. But it was also because their way of life had drastically changed. That because when people had given their life to Jesus, it didn't matter where they were from, if they were Samaritan, if they were Jew, if they were Gentile, Jew, Gentile, it didn't even matter. Where they were in the socioeconomic strata, it didn't even matter. It says they were all together and had everything in common. Because they were all surrendered to one Lord and they were all surrendered to one spirit. So their lives were drastically different than those around them. And the people around them began began to be curious. That's what it said in verse 47. You didn't see that. It said people were getting saved daily. Had to be some level of curiosity. People outside of the faith looking at them say, wow, those followers of the way are doing something different. Their life is different. They have a, a hope and a peace that I don't have. Man, I want that. Even as these people were followers of the way, I want you to know this, that the way of Jesus is a rejection of the dominant culture. The way of Jesus, the way of living, the way of Christian living is a rejection of the dominant culture. The dominant culture that the people of the way found themselves in were in the middle of two different extremes. They were in the middle of the temple worship, which was actually from the Jews, the Jewish form of worship and the people of the way were first persecuted by people in the temple. So they were caught between temple and empire. The Roman empire was the governing authority of all of that area. So now the people of the way were living in the middle of these two extremes. Well, how did they do it? We know how they did it. We just read it in Acts two forty-two through 47 that all of a sudden they were all together. They had everything in common. They weren't just so willing to look at all their differences They didn't let their differences divide them because they had one Lord and one baptism and they had one Savior. They weren't trying to seek a righteousness of of their own. Instead, they had experienced a righteousness apart from themselves that was rooted in the finished work of Jesus. These were people of the way and the way was a rejection of the dominant culture. He says, thank you very much. I found a better way to live. I'm going to live the life that Jesus talked about. I don't know, I don't know about what you guys are going to do. I don't know what you're going to do. We're just going to live the life that Jesus prescribed for us to live. Church, it's not rocket science. You know what I really wish? I wish we were the type of church where we could come to church and take our masks off. I long for us to be the type of church where we can take our masks off and we can be our true selves, where we can say when we're not okay. I long for the day when even outside of community groups, I know this happens in groups, but I long for the day where we would gather in this place and we don't have to have all this pretense that our life is perfect because we're simply inside of a church. I long for the day when we can be real with one another. I believe that the early church was real with one another because there's no way that that the people of the way can thrive in the middle of the temple and the empire without some level of vulnerability. That's what I want for us. What I want for you is, is to not just run out of this building after a service is over and think I've got something better to do. What I want for you is to have fellowship like the early church. I want you to be people of the way and not just people who get out of the way. I want you to be people of the way. I want your life to be one that other people would look at you and say, man, I don't know about them, but they are different. And it seems like there is some spiritual thing going on. And and like even other people who say they're Christians, they don't even have what they've got. And I want it. When you're a person of the way, it's a rejection of the dominant culture living a life of simplicity. They're eating together, praying together, praying alone. There were miracles, they're healing. So many times Christians today don't even think that God heals people anymore. They think, wow, that was amazing in the Bible. It's just like the way that God healed people, I really wish he did that. Uh, newsflash, he does. The same Holy Spirit has, he is doing the same things today that he was doing in that day. We just need spiritual eyes to see it. That's another message. Let's go to verse three. As he neared Damascus, just so we're caught up, that's about six days and nights. It's a little journey. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound But didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. We don't know that he was hangry, but he might have been. I probably would have been. What we do know is this story or a similar story. Different details is told three times in the book of Acts. We see it here in Acts 9. It's also in Acts 22, and it's also in Acts 26, where Saul goes back and he uses this testimony to to share the gospel with other people. He was like, no, 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 I was this way, and now I'm this way. Yeah, yeah, I was the one whispering and shouting murderous threats against the Christians. I'm that guy. But he says, I was that guy, but now I'm this guy. And one of the things he says in Acts 26 and verse 14 I think it even speaks a little deeper into what we just read. In the account in Acts 26, this is how it's recorded through the historian Luke. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Full confession, for years I had no idea what a goad was. I I, I literally thought like a goad was like a spiked plant. I was like, ow, ow. Ow, I just I didn't get it. I really had no idea. It was almost like in my mind I had like a yucca plant. I don't know. I'm weird. It's okay. Just call it. I'm weird. Like I had no idea what that was. So then a goad literally in their day would be like a rod that would have a metal tip on the end of it or certainly a point to it. And somebody who was herding cattle, they would goad the cattle. So they would just, they would prod the cattle just a little bit, Right? animal rights activists, relax, okay, relax. I don't, I don't know, no animals were hurt in the middle of this story. Now, when it happened, I have no idea, but right now, they're not, so relax. It's like, there's this, this, this goading, and they would say, oh, you need to go that way, and they would go to them, and they would just give them just a, just a touch, whoop, we're moving on, we're going, oh, we're supposed to go that way? So when Jesus says to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And look at how Jesus says this in this definitive statement, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's as if Jesus is saying, Is why do you keep kicking against my prodding? Why do you just continue to kick against and think about think about this in what I just told you that it's it's a rod with a pointed end, whether it's metal or wood, and 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 that. So think about what. What Jesus is saying to Saul, and and they would both know what this is, of course. Like, why are you kicking against this? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. The only person who suffers, Saul, is you. Christian, when you kick against God's promptings, the person who suffers is you. When you kick against the the obedience that Christ brought to mind last week, that you, you were so glad that I preached that message and then that that was a week ago, so now you don't have to do what you believe what God was leading you to do, right? Remember that one? Remember what came to mind and you haven't done yet? anyone? Anyone? Thanks for not being honest. You know, I mean, I know there's somebody, certainly. It's like the thing that God was prompting or goading you to do. He's like, yeah, hey, here's what I want you to do. You're my child. You're part of the family of God. You're, you're, you're part of the crew. All right, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go that way. I just want you to obey and do this. I want you to go there. I want you to go to your workplace instead of just hiding your faith. I want your, your faith to be public because we talked about that and what God is goading you to do. And he says, hey, go do it. Go do it. Go do it. Go do it. What Jesus is saying to you and I is, it's hard to kick against the goads. And we suffer. And we suffer. We suffer. So why do you kick against the goads? Why do, you, why do you push against the promptings? Why is it that you have so much bitterness in your heart and hatred in your heart for that one person, and every time God says you need to forgive them, you're like, nope. And then you create this this history lesson in your mind as to why you should never forgive them. It's hard to kick against the goads. And when you kick against the goads, it actually causes self-harm. So when Saul is being prompted by Jesus, what Saul is also being, I think in the middle of this, there's several things that, Saul would have known he's prompting against the the goads of the Old Testament cuz Saul would know the Old Testament but but his self-righteousness blinded him to the truth and so he had all of these things in the Old Testament that that he that were pointing to Jesus and all of those I believe if you look at the Old Testament there are goads to lead you to Jesus and those were things that he was kicking against he's like I just don't want to give up control CS Lewis explained the goads by a couple different metaphors. He said that when God goads someone to salvation, it's like a master fisherman luring in his fish. I know nothing about that. I am like not even qualified to be an amateur fisherman. I'm terrible at fishing. But he also said it's like a cat chasing a mouse or a a pack of hounds chasing a fox or a divine chess player outmaneuvering his opponent. Today, you could be God's opponent. You could have a level of self-righteousness where you think, no, I'm on God's side. You could be God's opponent. Years ago, I learned how to play chess when I was a kid and I never learned how to play chess. Like some of you would own me in chess. Like some of you are like, you know, you're you're plotting like three or four moves out. I'm like, so not that guy. I'm like, yes, it's a pawn. I can move once unless I can go, I can go twice, certain circumstances. I can do that, right? Oh, Bishop, going diagonally. I've got, am I right so far? Been a long, thank you. I've been a long time since i played chess. That's the end of my chess knowledge. Good, the end. So, um, so when I learn how to play chess, I don't think steps ahead. I just think of, okay, this is what I can do now. But so if we play chess and you know how to play, you'd be able to just destroy me every single time. And ultimately what happens when I play chess is I run out of moves and then I become cornered until my opponent says what? Checkmate. Checkmate. What I found is there's so many times in my life where I'm trying to do my own thing, but I'm actually working myself in a corner, and perhaps God has worked me into that corner, and when God's checkmate is given to me, it's actually the best grace for me because I'm all out of moves. Because I can't control it anymore. Because my self-righteousness isn't good enough anymore. Because when I compare my self-righteousness in light of Christ's righteousness, there's a big difference. And one leads to death and one leads to life. Because the gospel doesn't make religious people good, it makes dead people come to life. So many of you are caught up in this religious way of living. And you've been taught it and you've been shown it. And you grew up here. And unfortunately, look at me please, you could be blind to it. You can be blind to it. You know what burdens my soul as your pastor? The thought that many of you believe that you're Christians and you're not. The thought that many of you think, well, I grew up in the South and I know a couple Bible verses, but I just want you to know knowledge doesn't equal salvation. It doesn't. And some of you have been living in this idea of knowledge and you've been basing and building up this level of self righteousness and you are God's opponent. You are God's opponent. My hope is that today would be your checkmate. You would stop running, stop controlling, stop pushing back. And for the first time, truly surrender. And say, God, I'm sorry for making a mess of things. I'm sorry for trying to be, you know, I'm self-righteous because I come from a culture where we, just, we need to just rely upon ourselves. In other words, what you're saying is, God, I'm self-righteous and I'm proud to be self-righteous. What would life be like if that went away? Where you stop pretending that this became a place of vulnerability and honesty that you could literally just take the mask off and be like, hey, peekaboo, this is the real me. This is the real me. Maybe for you, maybe today is the kind of the taking the mask off where you came into this place thinking, I'm a follower of Jesus and you gave me all this religious pedigree as to why you are, but now you're finding out that's actually your self-righteousness. That's not Christ righteousness. That you've been simply trying to base your salvation on a bunch of data, facts, and information, but you haven't been changed. I want you to know something. If the gospel has not changed you, it hasn't saved you. It just hasn't. That's what the gospel does. When somebody gets saved, it's not that you just, you have your heart that you want, and then you give Jesus this little part of your heart and be like, Jesus, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, and come right here. Right? That's not how it works. When Jesus comes into a heart, he rips out your old heart because it's dead. And then he puts one that's alive in you, and it's alive with the spirit of God. That's what He does. This is not some feel-good message. You probably figured that out so far, right? But this is a message that changes you because I tell the, I tell the truth about you. Through this passage, and through the, the study of Saul, I, I see some other things about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is common with gifted people. Self-righteous blinds you to the truth. self-righteous divide you from other people. It makes you argue with the truth. It's common with with hypocritical behaviors and self-righteous people love the praise of men more than God. That's what I found. Saul's life had every one of these. Every one of these. Perhaps you do too. Perhaps you have one or two of these. Perhaps... In looking at this list, maybe the list from earlier, that there's something in you that now you're you're aware of that's broken. Perhaps there's something within you that's broken that needs to be well. And you've tried on your own, and it's just never been enough. Let's see if you can gain some of the hope that Saul received. Acts 9, 10 through 19 says this. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, he says in verse 13, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Ananias is reasoning with God. He's like, "Uh, seriously, Lord, because word gets around a small town and I know his story. Like he's trying to kill folks. Like, and now like, should I bring a posse with me? Like, should I just go there alone? Because, I mean, do I need to get some reinforcements? Do I need to bring some weapons? It's like, I know he's got a crew. Do I need to bring my crew? Like, what's going on here? But look how God responds to him. Verse 14, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He's fearful. Still, verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, wow. So he went from, I'm fearful, an enemy of the gospel. And now he's actually calling Saul brother. Wow. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell off Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and, and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Wow. How things change when Christ becomes the center of your life. How the facade of self-righteousness just isn't satisfying anymore when you get to a place of surrender. Oh, how things change when, when a man or woman, a boy or girl fully gives their life to Jesus. Things change from the inside out. Saul, what we see from another passage, I'll just read this to you. This comes from Philippians 3, 4 through 9. This is what Saul says in later years. I told you where he started, self-righteous. We're going to see a little bit of his pedigree even in this passage. Like where he starts, but then we're going to see where he finishes. And perhaps his story would be like yours. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh or self-righteousness, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, thoughtless. He's like, I owned it. Like, I invented the game. I perfected the game. I was the authority. I had all the religious stuff down. But in verse 7, he says this, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. He's like, I consider them trash. They have no value to me anymore. That I may gain Christ and be found with him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. How things change. So, what happened when he is starting his his journey, persecuting people of the way, shouting out murderous threats, throwing Christians in prison in that day, to now later in his life? And he's writing this letter to a church in Philippi and he's trying to encourage them. They needed some encouragement. And he's writing this letter and he's like, everything that I did, I consider it trash. Everything that you're trying to base your righteousness on, I have so much more. What happened between then and now in his life? Jesus, that's what happened. Jesus. But he learned what, what you and I have to come to grips with. There's going to be a day, whether it's in in this life or after you you pass out of this skin and then you're you're being judged by God alone on the merit of your righteousness, which is no righteousness. But there's going to be a day where we all have to come to this reality and how about we just embrace this reality right now? How about we just embrace this reality that maybe I came into this place with the level of self-righteousness and I've been trying to do this whole thing my own on my own. I've been just trying to rock through this Christian life, and I've been just trying to be a morally good person, hoping that one day God would look at me and say, good job, you are so much better than everyone else. I mean, there, there's, there was the way through Jesus, but I'm going to create a different way for you because you are so good. If that were possible, Saul would have been let in on his own self-righteousness. Maybe today is God's Checkmate for you. That you stop squirming. You stop trying to live a life on your terms, but you finally come to a place of surrender. I want to give you a chance to respond to this message. I invite you to stand with me. The only way that you can move forward, if you're feeling like this weight on your shoulders about this idea of self righteousness the only way you can move forward is surrender maybe for you 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 came in here thinking you were a christian and now you're like you know what i'm not even sure let me just tell you something if you're not sure you're probably not if you're not sure that you're a christian you're probably not because either christ takes full occupancy of your heart or he doesn't that's just the truth So you may have come into this place thinking, you know what, I'm good because I'm morally good. And now you found out that you're actually spiritually bankrupt. That your righteousness just doesn't quite cut it. So maybe today is the place of surrender before God and say, God, I am so sorry. I've been so blind to myself. I've been blind to the gospel and I wanna see. I wanna see and I wanna experience your goodness in my life. God, I want my life to, to be one built on your righteousness. Maybe for you, as we just pray together, maybe you just need to say, God, I am sorry for making a mess of things. I'm sorry for trying to, to build up these, these walls of these, just these platforms of self-righteousness to be okay with you. I'm sorry, I, now I know that it's not good enough. And you need to surrender it to Jesus. Even in this moment, God, I just know that maybe you're drawing somebody right now and they need to come forward. They need to make it public. They need to just take the mask off and stop being fake. And they need to admit that they're not okay. And God, I pray that you would draw them to the front. God, they don't need to escape to the back. They need to come to the front. They need to own it before this this community of believers. They need to own it before you. And they need us to maybe even come forward and accept salvation and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I want it to change me. I want to surrender. The way to gain victory in the Christian life is by surrendering to Jesus. You can look at me now. We're going to sing... But as we do so, I just want you to know that that the front of the stage is open. You come forward. If you need somebody to pray with you, the ministry team leaders will come forward to pray with you. But if you just need to come forward and say, God, I've made a mess of things. I've been trying to base my life on self-righteousness, and now I know that it's just not cutting it. And maybe you just need to come before God and say, God, I am sorry. I confess that as sin before you. Maybe you need for the very first time to say, God, come into my heart. Take control of my life. Make it all. My righteousness is no righteousness. I'm gonna pray again. If you, if you wanna to come to the front and pray, please come to the front and pray. Don't let your self-righteousness keep you in the seats. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today. We pray under and we pray in and we pray through the matchless name of Jesus. Not only is Jesus a banner of truth, He's the grace we need. Father, in this moment, I I just sense that, that somebody, perhaps a lot of people need to give it all to you. And Father, I pray that in this moment, God, that you will help them in their time of need, that you meet them right where they are, Lord, that you will teach them that once they receive the gospel, that there's no shame, that you take the shame away. And Father, as people are moving forward and people are praying, God, I pray that they would find victory in you. Or the hope of salvation is rooted in you, Jesus. Not our self-righteousness, not our pride, not our arrogance, but in you. Father, teach us surrender. Teach us it by your grace. Amen. Amen.